The Netherlands allows a depressed teen to die. Miley Cyrus weighs in on abortion. And Joe Biden runs into plagiarism trouble. Again, this is The Ben Shapiro Show. All righty, a lot to get to today, and we'll jump into all of it. But first, do you remember when the left called the Green New Deal bold? How about their bold defense of anti-Semitism in the House? So much boldness. I think they're sort of mistaking the word bold for something else, because the way I define bold is the taste of freedom. I get every morning with my Black Rifle coffee. I love Black Rifle coffee. I get up every morning after a hard night of dealing with my children, <laughs> and I need coffee to get through this show. Black Rifle Coffee makes it happen for me. Black Rifle Coffee gives a portion of their sales to veterans and first responder causes. Black Rifle Coffee is roast to order, guaranteeing you fresh, delicious coffee with every order. Black Rifle's Coffee Club, they make things easy. Just pick your blend, the amount you want. Black Rifle ships your coffee direct to your door every month, hassle-free. For a bold cup of America's best coffee, visit blackriflecoffee.com ben. Get 20% off your first purchase. That is blackriflecoffee.com ben. For 20% off that first purchase, blackriflecoffee.com slash Ben. I know the guys behind the company. They are awesome dudes, and you will be helping them out. And also, getting amazing coffee in the process, plus a percentage of their sales goes to veterans and first responders. So what is there to lose except the opportunity to get crappier coffee? Get better coffee with blackriflecoffee.com slash Ben. That is blackriflecoffee.com slash Ben. Go check it out right now. All righty, so the big story of the day is this awful story from, from the Netherlands. According to the Washington Post, a Dutch teenager who suffered from depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and anorexia after being raped as a child was allowed to die at her home, her sister confirmed on Sunday. This kid was 17 years old. In what she termed a sad last post on Instagram, Noah Pothoven, 17, wrote Saturday she would be dead within 10 days. But it had been so long, she added, since she had really been alive. After years of struggling and fighting, it's over, she wrote. The teenager from the city of Arnhem in the eastern part of the Netherlands said she had stopped eating and drinking and would soon be released because my suffering is unbearable. Her decision was not impulsive, she emphasized. Rather, it was the result of many conversations and assessments. Offering her own blunt review of her condition, she observed, quote, I survive and not even that. I breathe but no longer live. It was unclear whether her death had come with the involvement of doctors whose assistance she had at one point requested. She had asked the, the doctors in the Netherlands, a board in the Netherlands, if they would help her kill herself. A spokeswoman for a member of Dutch parliament who had recently visited her told Dutch News that she understood the death to be a result of the girl's refusal to eat. The Vatican mourned her passing Wednesday morning on Twitter. They said, Noah's death is a great loss for any civil society and for humanity. We must always assert the positive reasons for life. Pope Francis issued a separate message. He said, euthanasia and assisted suicide are a defeat for all. We are called never to abandon those who are suffering, never giving up but caring and, uh, and loving to restore hope. Assisted suicide is, of course, legal in parts of the United States as well as Europe. It depends on where you are, what the rules are. Active euthanasia is lawful only in places like Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. The Netherlands legalized the practice of euthanasia in 2001. That was the year that Noah was born. The vote in Dutch Parliament was the culmination of a campaign, according to the Post, that began in 1973 following the prosecution of a general practitioner who had ended the life of her mother after a cerebral hemorrhage left her partly paralyzed, deaf, and mostly unable to speak. The end-of-life clinic in The Hague, where Noah had sought services, spells out narrow circumstances under which doctors may provide assisted dying, requiring that the patient makes a clear and autonomous request and is enduring unbearable and unendurable suffering. There must be no other reasonable solution. Patients have to demonstrate understanding of the consequences of what they are requesting. Doctors are required to seek counsel from an independent colleague who is not familiar with the patient. Children as young as 12 can seek euthanasia under Dutch law. But those from 12 to 16 must obtain parental consent. So in the United States, you have to ask a, a parent for some 
form of, for some form of permission to obtain an aspirin. But apparently children as young as 12 can seek euthanasia under Dutch law. And once you're past 16, you don't need permission from a parent to seek physician-assisted suicide. The procedure accounts for 4.4% of all the deaths in the Netherlands in 2017. Of the 6,600 cases that were, uh, requests that were granted, most were in cases of untreatable cancer. A few involved psychiatric distress. So the, the controversy that's broken out here is whether this girl actually received euthanasia from the government or whether she simply stopped eating and the government refused to intubate her, refused to force feed her effectively. Noah initially approached the clinic last year without her parents' knowledge. She was turned away. She was told she was too young to die. She said, they think I'm too young to die. She said, I can't wait that long because she was instructed to complete a trauma treatment and wait until her brain was more fully developed. A spokeswoman for the clinic did not return a request for comment. So it is simply unclear at this point what exactly the government's involvement was. Noah had written a book. In that book, she traced the origin of her mental anguish. At the age of 11, she was assaulted at a school party and again at a gathering of teenagers a year later. When she was 14, she writes, she was raped by two men in the Elderveld neighborhood of Arnhem. For years, she kept the violation secret out of shame. It was only years later her family learned what she had endured after her mother came across a cache of, uh, of letters saying goodbye to her loved ones. She remained too afraid to make a formal declaration to the police. Lisa Vesterveld, the Dutch lawmaker who visited Noah before her death, when she was surrounded by family and friends in her living room, said she was struck by the teenager's strength. She told her Gerderlander that it was nice to see her again, although the circumstances were surreal. A spokesman for Westerveld told the Washington Post she didn't know more about the circumstances of the teenager's death. The Ministry of Health, Welfare, and Sport did not return a request for comment. Suffice it to say, you do have to ask, in this particular case, why so many people who believe that subjective perception of the value of human life is paramount, why those people would be upset about this. This, I understand why I'm upset about this, because I believe that, that human beings have inherent value, that human life has inherent value, and that inherent value is not subject to the subjective perceptions of either outsiders or the assent of the person whose human life we are talking about. In other words, if you decide to commit suicide, you have committed a sin against yourself, you have committed an immoral act against yourself. And if you decide to commit suicide in circumstances where you don't have terminal cancer, that is particularly true. Now, I've, I've always said that when it comes to euthanasia, I'm personally torn when you're talking about somebody who has terminal cancer, who's days away from death. The truth is that we have palliative care now. Palliative care is something that doctors engage in on a regular basis across the United States and Europe. Basically, somebody's in the hospital, they're going to die. Instead of putting them on some sort of life-saving assistance, you basically allow the process to move forward and you palliate the pain. So, for example, you give them morphine or something. That's different from taking active steps to kill somebody. That would be euthanasia. I think that euthanasia is wrong, but at least I see the argument in cases of terminal care. When you are talking about a 17-year-old girl who suffers from psychological trauma, you're talking about an act of grave evil from my perspective because what you are doing is taking away the value of the human life. And if the government was complicit in any way with this, then this is Orwellian horror that the government was involved in. And frankly, even if the government allowed this girl to starve herself, that is an Orwellian horror. Because the fact is that government was instituted to protect life, liberty, and property. And life is not subject to your perception of the value of life. Life is of objective merit. But here's the question. If you believe that life is of subjective value, what's your problem here? Why is this sad? The girl got what she wanted, right? I mean, it's sad, I suppose, that she... Not, I suppose it is sad, obviously, that she suffered from something so terrible. But 
if you are on the left and you believe that she she got to decide the value of her own life, this girl, then why exactly aren't you celebrating today the fact that she made this decision? Why aren't you celebrating the fact that the state facilitated the decision, apparently? Why are you upset today? I understand you being upset about the fact that this girl suffered. I understand you being upset about the fact that this girl was mistreated and raped and all the rest, obviously. But is there anything inherently wrong with the decision-making on the part of the state? I mean, this is a serious moral question because it does go to an even more serious moral question, which is, should we evaluate life on an objective level or should we evaluate life and science? Should, should we evaluate objective fact on subjective merits? Meaning, are things only important because we, we think them so or are they important in and of themselves? This debate extends all the way to abortion. Now, I've, I've discussed abortion over the course of many years. And what I've always said is that if you believe there's an inherent value to human life, then you have to take seriously the contention that human life begins at conception and therefore that there is something of value, of objective human value that must be protected. People on the left have responded that basically a human life is what a woman decides a human life is and not even her own life. The baby's life is what the woman, life, is what the woman suggests it is. Her subjective perception of the value of what is growing inside of her is more important than any objective assessment of what it is that is growing inside her. And this is what leads the Democratic Party to the bizarre circumstance where they are claiming that aborting up till the point of birth is perfectly acceptable because after all, a woman may decide that that's not a baby. It's just a cluster of cells until it's not a cluster of cells anymore. At least there's a consistent logic to that. But when people on the right suggest that people on the far left are engaged in a culture of death, this is what they're talking about. What they're talking about is once you devalue human life to the subjective perception of its value, once human life becomes about not whether it has inherent objective value apart from anybody's subjective perception of that fact, once you start talking about that, it is incredibly easy to dehumanize other groups of people. It is incredibly easy to take human life with no more seriousness than a grain of salt. It is easy to end up in a circumstance where a 17-year-old girl who suffers from depression and PTSD and anorexia is allowed to starve to death by the state or maybe be euthanized, depending on which account you believe at this point. And you end up with these, these perverse moral absurdities, like the state of New York. So the state of New York has now decided that it is very, very important that declawing be banned. Now, I don't own a cat, so I don't know anything about declawing. Sounds like it's a pretty terrible practice. New York is now banning the practice because it will now apparently impose a $1,000 fine on veterinarians who perform a procedure for non-medical purposes because apparently declawing a cat involves damaging the cat's toes. One of the several lawmakers to champion the measure, Assemblywoman Linda Rosenthal, Democrat of Manhattan, was visibly jubilant after the vote. She had previously rallied against declawing and condemned its invasive nature in a, in a, in a statement, quote, it's not like getting a mani-pedi, she said. It's a brutal surgical procedure. So let's just to get this straight, the state of New York is now going to fine veterinarians who perform declawing $1,000 for every time they do this, if they perform the procedure for non-medical purposes. The state of New York just lit up its state property, pink, in honor of a bill that says you can kill a fully formed human baby in the womb up to the point it enters the birth canal. Okay, I mean, you, you want to end up with a perverse moral system that devalues human life? This would be it right here. Listen, I'm perfectly fine with banning declawing. Frankly, I don't have much of a, a dog in the fight, no pun intended, but it seems bad. So I'm fine with the idea that you shouldn't be able to make animals suffer simply because you don't want your furniture scratched. But I also hold that human life has a value if you're more concerned about the toes of cats than you are about the lives of babies in the womb, I would suggest that your, your devaluing of human life is perverse. 
deeply perverse. And listen to the language used by that assemblywoman. It's a brutal surgical procedure on the cat. You know what's more brutal than hurting a cat's toes? Crushing a baby's skull and then sucking its brains into a sink and then disposing of its body parts. That, that, that seems a little more brutal to me. Like if I just had to put that like on a map of brutality, it seems like that's a little more brutal, but maybe that's just me. I'm going to get to more of this. The, the left culture of devaluing human life, if not a culture of death, in one second. First, losing your hair sucks. Two out of three dudes are going to experience hair loss by the time they are 35. And this is why you need Keeps. It's the easiest and most affordable way to keep the hair that you have. These FDA-approved products used to cost a ton of money, but now, thanks to Keeps, they're finally inexpensive and they are easy to obtain. For five minutes now, starting at just 10 bucks per month, you'll never have to worry about hair loss again, which is a great relief. You know, male pattern baldness runs in my family, so Keeps is fantastic. Getting started is super easy. Signing up takes less than five minutes. Just answer a few simple questions, snap some photos to complete your online doctor consultation. A licensed physician will review your information online, recommend the right treatment for you, and then it's shipped right to your door every three months. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. You may have tried them before, never for this price. Only 10 bucks to 35 bucks a month, plus now you can get your first month for free. That's a hell of a deal for getting to keep your hair. If you suffer from hair loss, the last thing you need is to wait to see a doctor. With Keeps, there's finally a way to get the help you need when you need it. I mean, really, these things cost a fortune unless you get them with Keeps. And if you, like I, have male pattern baldness running in your family, this is really a fantastic choice. Go to keeps.com slash Ben and receive your first month of treatment for free for a limited time. Receive that first month of treatment for free. Go to keeps.com slash Ben. So back to this New York law. So New York just celebrated the killing of the unborn by lighting up its buildings pink. But they are definitely standing strong when it comes to onychectomy, which is declawing. New York Director for Humane Society of the United States, Brian Shapiro, no relation, who advocated the legislation, explained the procedure is not as simple as removing a cat's nail. It requires amputating the last bone segment in a cat's toes. He, he said that the legislation was a great victory. The origins of declawing date back to 1952. The Washington Post is really ecstatic about all of this. I don't believe there will be any editorials about whether the value of cat life is more important than the value of saving your furniture. I don't believe there will be any opposing editorials on that. There will be, however, an opposing editorial every single day in the Washington Post about the value of protecting the unborn. There they will, they will go all out. So if you seek to protect the unborn, it's because you're a vicious, brutal sexist. If you seek to protect cats, that's because you're a humane human being. This has to do with a general culture that suggests that human life is only as valuable as your perception of human life. And that's how you end up with the, this bizarre logic that is used by so many members of the left. So let's take an example. Whoopi Goldberg on The View. She articulates a message that so many people on the, mess, uh, on the left are constantly articulating. That message is that when it comes to abortion, people on the right simply want to be involved with women's bodies. This is a very stupid argument. It's always been a very stupid argument. I am not interested in the bodies of anybody except for my wife because my wife happens to be incredibly hot. I'm really not interested in certainly Whoopi Goldberg's coochie, as she puts it. But Whoopi Goldberg suggests that Nikki Haley is deeply interested in Whoopi Goldberg's coochie, which would be a revelation for sure. It'd certainly be on the cover of In Touch magazine, were that the truth. It turns out that Nikki Haley is pro-life, but Whoopi Goldberg has demeaned human life to the point that human life doesn't exist so long as it is inside her because she has a subjective perception that it ought not to exist. So here is Whoopi Goldberg making that ridiculous case. Planned Parenthood is much more yeah, right. than an abortion clinic, much, much more. They do many more things. So basically, you're saying, I'm getting rid of this so you can't have this conversation anymore. Because I'll tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. If a woman wants to do this, 
She's going to do it. Taking choice only means you're making it more dangerous. Now, yeah. again, I don't say that everybody has to believe, but I say you want you want to have choice. I don't want you in my coochie. I don't want you in my no, no one's interested. Whoopee. It's hard to break it to you, but that's, that's not something anybody is thinking about, frankly. Well, what everybody is thinking about is the value of the human life in the womb. But if you believe that human life can be boiled down to subjective notions of value, then of course this is where you end up. Because your view is as valuable as my view. Maybe your view is more valuable than my view. And that means that if you decide to stamp out the life, well, no problem. No problem. Once you turn subjective values of human life into the norm, you shouldn't be surprised when people are dehumanized. And this is how you have ended up at the point where the left doesn't just say safe, legal, and rare anymore. The left doesn't say abortion, a difficult decision, taking into account all sorts of terrible factors. There's a vast gap between how op-ed pages handle the abortion issue and how the hardcore left on social media and many of the, of the advocates in the media handle the abortion issue. What I mean is that the op-ed pages typically are replete with terrible horror stories from the fringes of occurrence. So what they will do is they will find some case where a woman has a Tay-Sachs baby and she's told she has a Tay-Sachs baby in month two and then she carries it all the way to term and she suffers for two years with a Tay-Sachs baby who suffers greatly and then dies. And they'll say, this is why abortion ought to be legal. Okay, that is an, a, an emotionally driven argument that at least there is an appeal to, but the basic argument there is that only in extraordinary circumstances should abortion really be on the table. But the left doesn't actually believe that. The left has moved on to it's time to fully celebrate abortion. Abortion is worth celebrating. Of course, abortion is worth celebrating if your perspective is that human life is of subjective value. So you end up with idiocies like Miley Cyrus. I, I, how this person is famous is absolutely beyond me. I know our producer Nick has a strange fondness for some of her songs, which she plays on the banjo. It, it's very bizarre. But in any case, Miley Cyrus tweeted out a photo of herself licking a cake that says on it, abortion is healthcare. First of all, not sanitary. Do not lick that cake. That is, other people might want a piece of that cake. So there's that. Number two, why does every picture of Miley Cyrus feature her sticking her tongue on things? It's very bizarre. I don't know what her fixation is with putting her tongue on things, but I mean, I have a feeling I understand what the marketing aspect of that is, but she tweeted out very special collab with Planned Parenthood for America, Happy Hippie, and Marc Jacobs. So fashion brands are now getting involved which I think suggests to pro-lifers, perhaps you shouldn't chop Mark Jacobs anytime soon. I think that's fair. This to be announced very soon. Nine wise there. Hashtag women's rights are human rights. Hashtag don't F with my freedom. And then there are a bunch of emojis of a dress and then a, and then a church with love signs and then I guess a transgender symbol or something. Okay, and that, that wasn't all Miley Cyrus tweeted out. Again, this is a celebration. It's party in the USA abortion. It's not just that abortion... Is, is something that is a serious moral consideration. It's party in the USA time, and it has to do with women's vaginas. That's what Miley Cyrus is very concerned about. And she proved that by tweeting out a bizarre video of herself fingering various fruit in close-up. It's supposed to be, obviously, some sort of reference to female genitalia, so it's got her like putting her fingers inside cantaloupes and papayas. Again, I don't know why she's so unsanitary with food. Like, wear gloves. I mean, the lunch lady wears gloves. I don't understand why you, no one wants to eat that cantaloupe anymore. You've destroyed that papaya for all time. I mean, that, that grapefruit is not, I would not serve that to anybody, that grapefruit. So she's already ruined a cake, a papaya, a cantaloupe, and a grapefruit, all in the name of abortion. I mean, forget about subjective value of human life. There's an objective value to clean, cleanliness and food preparation. But in any case, it does show you how you get from safe, legal, and rare to 
let's celebrate it because once it's subjective, if you don't care about it, you don't care about it. You know, there's this, this amazing thread on Twitter where somebody had tweeted out a picture of a miscarried fetus at something like 10 weeks. And miscarried fetuses at 10 weeks look like babies. I know, I have seen them. Okay, they, they look like tiny human beings. It's, it's awful and sad and terrible. And people on the left were tweeting back things like, I would stomp on that. I would throw that away, I would burn that. Really, that, I'm not making this up. This was a, a full Twitter thread. The replies were just horrendous. This is what happens when human life becomes devalued. So here's my question for folks on the left. If human life is of subjective value, why are you sad today? Do you think anything wrong happened in the case of the 17-year-old girl in the Netherlands who decided to commit suicide and was not stopped from doing it by the state? Now, she could have been given treatment. A lot of these cases, some psychiatric treatment, some medication is useful. Suicidality, in many cases, is treatable. You know, are, do you think that anybody did anything wrong in this case? Or is it just a sad story because something bad happened to this this young woman, and then it's sort of happy because she got what she wanted in the end. I mean, how do you feel about this? If on a gut level, you hear that story, and you say to yourself, the state did something wrong. This girl's life should have been protected. This girl should be alive today. She's 17 years old. She's physically healthy. There's nothing wrong with her physically. She just had been a victim of rape and PTSD. By the way, the same people in the Netherlands who are happy to facilitate her death are, I'm sure, happy to let the rapist out in four years or less. If you think there's something wrong with that, I would ask you why you think that. Maybe it's because you actually down deep believe that there is an objective value to human life, that her own subjective assessment of the value of her own life was not correct. That when people are suicidal and they believe their life is not worth living, that their assessment can be wrong, that their subjective perception of reality is not in fact reality. And if that's the case, maybe you need to reconsider how you feel about the value of human life when that human life exists in the womb. I'm gonna get to subjectivity and science a little bit more in just one second. First, this Father's Day, give dad a gift he packed with the Omaha steaks he craves. Okay, let me, let me just tell you something. Omaha steaks, I have lots of friends who eat Omaha steaks. They are unbelievable, according to many of the people in this very office. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter code Shapiro in the search bar for 74% off the Father's Day Steak Fix gift package. A $235 value right now for only $59.99. So if you order it now, here's what you're going to get. Like, this is incredible deal. I mean, just on a pure buying meat basis, this is an incredible deal. You order now, here's what you get. Two filet mignons, two top sirloins, two pork chops, two four Omaha steak burgers, four gourmet jumbo franks, four chicken fried steaks, all beef meatballs, four chicken breasts, four caramel apple tartlets, a packet of Omaha steaks and signature seasoning, and you get four extra Omaha steak burgers for free. You're going to get all of that at 74% off. That is a hell of a gift for dad or stock up for your incredible summer grilling because summer is coming. Again, order right now. You can get this exclusive Omaha Steaks Father's Day Steak Fix Package valued at 235 bucks for just $59.99. I mean, you're not going to get more meat and better meat than that at any price. Just go to omahasteaks.com, type code Shapiro into the search bar. Don't wait. The offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, type Shapiro in the search bar to get the Father's Day Steak Fix Package today. I mean, if you know... Your dad's going to love it. Your dad's going to love it. It, it. it sounds amazing. OmahaSteaks.com. Type Shapiro in that search bar and get the special deal. Okay, so speaking of the perversion of science on behalf of the subjective, Jesse Single, who's a, a very good writer on science, he is not of the political right, but he happens to be rooted in reality when he talks about things. He has a piece in his newsletter today about a New York Times article. So this New York Times article was published about a week ago. And it talked about chest binding. It talked about how chest binding 
may actually have risks. It turns out that if you are a young woman who wishes to look like a man, and so you bind your chest back, this may in fact damage your breasts. Who would have thought? Right? Just like foot binding will damage your feet, it turns out that if you bind a physical part of yourself down, this may damage you in some way. So this article by Amy Sohn says, it used to be that when a 13-year-old wanted a binder for school, it meant a trip to Staples. For today's tweens and teens who identify as gender non-conforming or transgender, shopping for a binder may mean a compression undergarment worn to flatten breasts. Made of thick spandex and nylon, binders resemble tight undershirts, creating a masculine profile. The, Academy, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics has estimated that 0.7% of 13 to 17-year-olds in the United States, about 150,000, identify as transgender. Now, the truth is, a huge number of these people will detransition as soon as they grow out of their adolescence. The number of young people who identify as transgender or gender fluid or gender non-binary, it decreases radically over time. D Dr. John Stever, assistant professor of pediatrics at Mount Sinai Adolescent Health Center in Manhattan, and has evaluated over 500 patients from ages 8 to 23, said that almost 95% of the transmasculine teenagers in the program bind. Binders are not classified as medical devices. Some doctors and parents have concerns about their safety. Common sense binding guidelines include don't use ace bandages or duct tape, don't bind at night, limit a binder to eight to 10 hours a day, don't shower in it, don't wear two, and don't wear one that is too small. So they, they're pushing these products that are specifically designed to press breasts into the, into the chest cavity, effectively speaking. And it turns out this may have some damage from people. It turns out that this may hurt people. Dr. Stever says most of his patients who use blind binders then tell me the next things they want to do, like testosterone, mastectomy, and maybe phalloplasty. 95% of the people I've evaluated get started on cross-hormones. And then the article talks about the possibility of, of damage, you know, that, that this can actually hurt people. Well, obviously, it can hurt people. Dr. Alana Scherer, a pediatrician, founder of the Child and Adolescent Gender Center at the University of California, San Francisco, emailed that binders can be physically very uncomfortable and can cause problems especially if overused or ill-fitting. So it's important that every youth weigh the risks and benefits for themselves and have access to quality, well-fitted binders. Even those are correlated with negative health effects, says the article, though there have been no studies on binding in adolescent health because of ethical concerns about research on binders. I love that. I love that. So there have been no studies on binding in adolescent health because we are deeply worried about the ethical concerns of research on binders. So instead, we just have no research on it, and then the kids walk around and we pretend like it's not damaging them. Because of a 2017 study by students at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Medicine looked at 1,800 transmasculine adults with a median age of 23. 78% of respondents said they had bound for over a year, over half bound an average of seven days a week. 66% were interested in top surgery, which is the physical removal of the breasts. An additional 13.1% had already had the surgery. Participants reported a statistically significant improvement in mood after binding, which makes sense if you are, if you are gender dysphoric, then presumably if you now resemble a member of the sex that you wish to belong to, then this may alleviate some of your mood. But here's the problem. As for physical effects, 97.2% of the group that bound reported at least one negative physical symptom, such as back pain, overheating, chest pain, shortness of breath. Other symptoms included numbness, bad posture, and lightheadedness. It is also unclear what exactly the long-term effects of binding your breasts are. Binding is not benign, says one woman. And she says, it encourages the idea that people's distress and anger and trauma should be turned inward toward their own bodies instead of outward toward the culture that feels oppressive to them. That's Brie Jantry, the spokeswoman for Fourth Wave Now, which was founded by a woman whose daughter told her that she was trans at 11. And then she realized that she was not trans after a while. 
Okay, so this article is a fairly objective take on chest binding, meaning it may alleviate psychological pain for some people for a while. Also, there could be serious physical side effects to, shocker, binding your breasts down. As Jesse Single writes, this has prompted folks on the left to go nuts. BuzzFeed's LGBT editor, BuzzFeed is just, what a garbage publication BuzzFeed often is. BuzzFeed's LGBT editor, Shannon Keating, tweeted, Today, ant- today's anti-trans scaremongering from the, en- from the New York Times, an entire story framed to highlight the physical downsides of chest binding. No mention of trans youth suicide rates. No quote from gender non-conforming people for whom binding is life-saving. And who gets quoted, though? Anti-trans hate group. Fourth wave now. Now, that, of course, is not an accurate summation of the piece. I just read you a large part of the piece. But the, the particular take here, which is that it is bad to report on objective facts, like binding your breasts may have physical effects, that this is considered offensive by people on a subjective perception of reality is more important than an objective assessment of reality. That's, that's dangerous stuff. Once subjectivity becomes the order of the day, you can kiss goodbye to science. You can kiss goodbye to a republic because you can't have conversations with people anymore. Their subjective perception of reality is more important than reality. This is why it is a bugaboo of mine when people say things like, it's my truth. It's my truth. There is no such thing as your truth. There is the truth and there is your opinion. And your opinion may resemble the truth or it may be drawing upon facts that are the truth. But it is still your opinion. And the fact that for a lot of folks on the left, they want to boil down issues of objective value, whether we are talking about human life or whether we are talking about science, whether we are talking about biological sex, whether we are talking about objective metrics of academic performance. If you want to boil all that down to how you feel about those things, you can't have a conversation anymore because if I question your feelings, I am then questioning your identity. And if I question your identity, then we can't have a conversation. It used to be that we were able to separate facts from opinion, or at least we tried to do this. Now we have determined that we can no longer do this. And the media have been so complicit in this move, so incredibly complicit in this move. Data are held to be secondary to the narrative because the narrative is a subjective take on facts. The narrative is a story that you tell about the facts, but it is not the fact. It is the way the human mind draws a story from a set of facts. And we can argue about whether that story is properly drawn from the data points provided. But you can't argue the data points unless the data points themselves are wrong. Instead, we have decided that if the data points contradict the narrative, the data points go out the window. This is how you end up with stupidities like the media pushing false narratives about a set of facts in police brutality cases, for example. There are some police brutality cases where the set of facts supports police brutality. There are some police brutality cases in which the facts do not support that. But according to the media, no. Every time the police are brutal, this supports a widespread narrative that the police are always brutal. Every time there is a racist in the United States, this supports the idea that the entire United States is systemically racist. You drawing your narrative from an anecdotal piece of evidence not based on generalizable data or ignoring generalizable data in favor of a particular narrative is an act of intellectual bad faith. And we are moving toward the, those, those acts on a routine basis. And it makes it impossible to have a conversation. Really, it does. Because the minute you cite a fact, everybody begins to get uptight. You're contradicting who I am. You're, you're, you're overriding my truth. My, are you denigrating my experiences? No, you can have your experiences. And maybe your experiences are the truth. Or maybe they are your subjective perception of what happened. Okay, in a minute, we're going to get to the 2020 race first. There's a widely held belief that procrastination is a bad thing. I'm one of the people who tends to believe procrastination is a bad thing, but not always. Sometimes life is not quite so black and white. Sometimes procrastination can work in your favor. For example, if you need life insurance, but you've been putting it off, congratulations to you. You've managed to procrastinate long enough for technology to make it easy. 
Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and find your best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and the red tape. No sales pressure, no hidden fees, just financial protection and peace of mind. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy, they can also help you find the right home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance. So, if you need life insurance but you've been busy doing literally anything else, go check out Policy Genius right now. It's the easy way to compare all the top insurers and find the best value for you. PolicyGenius.com. Nobody wants to shop for life insurance, which is why they made it so easy. They want to ensure that you do the responsible thing. And it is, by the way, the responsible thing to ensure that your family is taken care of in case, God forbid, something should happen to you. Go check them out right now at PolicyGenius.com. Be an adult. PolicyGenius.com. Okay, coming up, we're going to get to another bizarre narrative, a subjective perception of reality that is not, in fact, the truth, but backs a particular political point of view. We'll get to that in just a second. First, you have to head over to DailyWire.com. When you do, get the rest of this show live. Yeah, man. That means two additional hours a day of content. And we are bringing you great content. Yesterday, for example, we had Kenneth Starr on to discuss the Mueller investigation and all of its ramifications. We have senators. We have governors. We have newsmakers. We have all sorts of people on the show. We also have two additional hours of commentary, which means that whatever happens during the day, you're going to get my take on it and the latest updates on the news. All you have to do is go subscribe. Also, you get Matt Walsh's show and Andrew Clavin's show. And if you want Michael Knowles' show, which, again, I don't know why you'd want that, but if you want it, I suppose you can have it if you go get the Daily Wire subscription right now for $9.99 a month. Also, you get this, the very greatest in beverage vessels. Look at this thing, this leftist, this leftist year's hot or cold tumbler. I mean, it is magnificent. And for $99 a year, that annual subscription, you can get that. You can also get access to our Sunday special on Saturdays. Our D-Day episode last week I thought was just terrific. We interviewed four survivors of World War II, uh, people, soldiers who fought on D-Day. I thought it was a great episode and in honor of D-Day, which is tomorrow. I think that you should go check that out. So lots of good stuff happening over at DailyWire.com. Also subscribe at YouTube and iTunes. You know, please leave us a review. We, we definitely appreciate that. We are the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. Alrighty, so speaking of drawing narratives from a set of facts that simply do not back the narrative, Bill de Blasio, groundhog killer, the, the Stalin of groundhogs. Bill de Blasio did a press conference yesterday. And he talked about anti-Semitism. Why was he talking about anti-Semitism? Well, because in his city, the city of which he is mayor, hate crimes against Jews have spiked dramatically. Anti-Semitic incidents have spiked by 90% in his city. Not a single one of those anti-Semitic incidents has been linked to white supremacists. This cuts against the argument by the left that all anti-Semitism is effectively white supremacist anti-Semitism. Now, me pointing this out is not me downplaying white supremacist anti-Semitism. Those people are evil. They are supremely evil. They have threatened my life. They have threatened my family's life. They've made my life miserable. There's a reason I have 24-7 security, and it is mostly for white supremacist anti-Semites. They've shot up several synagogues in the past year or so. They shot up the Chabad of Poway. They shot up the Pittsburgh synagogue. So white supremacists are evil. None of this is to downplay their evil. But the people who are abusing Jews in New York City are not white supremacists. The people who are abusing Jews in New York City are largely doing so in Williamsburg, and many of them are members of racial minority groups. That is just the statistical fact. Bill de Blasio comes out, however, And he says, because he's got a narrative that has no relation to fact, but he has a subjective perception of reality that he is going to impose on reality from above. He said on Tuesday that anti-Semitism is a right-wing movement. Only right-wing. There is no left-wing anti-Semitism. Poof, it's gone. Amazing. He says, I think the ideological movement that is anti-Semitic is the right-wing movement. Is what Bill de Blasio said, even while he continues to kowtow to the folks like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib inside his own party. 
even as Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, who is an open anti-Semite who consorts with terrorists, even while Jeremy Corbyn leads the Labor Party. Don't worry, there's no such thing as left-wing anti-Semitism. And hatred of Israel and, and a belief that Israel should disappear, that's not anti-Semitism at all. De Blasio said he did not agree with a claim by a reporter that there is also rising anti-Semitism on the left in the BDS movement and around the world. Really? I mean, this is, de Blasio's an idiot. But I mean, this kind of statement is so obtuse and the reverse of reality, it's almost impossible to overstate. He says there is no rising anti-Semitism on the left in the BDS movement and around the world. Has he visited a college campus? Has he seen people like Mark Lamont Hill saying, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free? Has he not seen the relationship between the BDS movement and the terror masters who originally created it? De Blasio said, quote, I want to be very, very clear. The violent threat, the threat that is ideological, is very much from the right. I mean, I would ask Jews in Europe if that's the case. I'd ask Jews in Williamsburg if that's the case. The Jews who are being attacked on the streets in Williamsburg, in his town, those people are not being attacked by white supremacists. In fact, not a single case can be traceable to a white supremacist. The New York Times admitted this back in October. I've talked about this piece many times because I think it's one of the most astonishing pieces of journalism I have ever seen in a major newspaper. The New York Times ran a piece back in October of last year talking about the radical uptick in anti-Semitism in New York. And they said, yeah, we haven't covered it. Why haven't we covered it? Because it doesn't easily conform to an ideological narrative. They admit this openly. The New York Times said openly, the reason we didn't cover this is basically because it wasn't a bunch of white supremacists from upstate Idaho. Because it was a bunch of minority folks who were beating on a bunch of Jews in Williamsburg. Amazingly, de Blasio wasn't just talking about U.S. incidents. If you wanted to say violent incidents in the U.S. are largely from white supremacists, at least you can make that case. But he was talking about international incidents as well, and that's absolute crap. The fact is that if you look at the international incidents, if you look in Europe, a huge number of anti-Semitic attacks have been perpetrated by radical Muslims in Europe. And those radical Muslims have been protected by left-wing governments and by left-wing allies. The remarks, of course, drew immediate blowback from the city council members on both sides of the political aisle, so long as they were Jewish. That's the way this works. If you're a Jewish Democrat, then you're allowed to come out against Bill de Blasio. If you're a non-Jewish Democrat, you have to pretend that he's not a moron. Chaim Deutsch, a Brooklyn Democrat, said, I don't agree with the mayor. I haven't seen any white supremacists coming in here committing these hate crimes. Indeed, according to the New York Post, New York Police Department Chief Dermot Shea said at the same press conference that perpetrators of hate crimes run the gamut from teens to people with mental illness to first-time offenders and career criminals. For example, a 16-year-old recently turned himself in for punching an Orthodox Jewish man in the head in Williamsburg. Staten Island Republican Borelli called the mayor's position laughable. He said, a simple look at where anti-Semitic hate crimes have occurred just disproves this, unless you count central Brooklyn as the home of a vast right-wing conspiracy. Bill de Blasio regularly says stupid things, but this is literally the stupidest effing thing he's ever said. Accurate, fact check, harsh but true. Again, when the data don't support your belief system, I suppose that you just run with the narrative anyway. Your subjective perception of reality is all that matters. This is why the left has worked just endlessly to try and shift the entire anti-Semitism discussion from anti-Semitism to the general right wing is responsible for anything. This is how you end up with BuzzFeed trying to report that I'm responsible for anti-Semitic attacks. And that's how you end up there. You just ignore data and instead you look to what makes you feel better about yourself, what massages your feelings. All right, coming up, we're going to get to the 2020 race. So 
The 2020 race, Joe Biden is finally running into a little bit of trouble. I mentioned yesterday a poll from CNN that showed that his support had dropped from 39% to 32%. And the insane contention by Ryan Strike, who's a reporter over there, that this was a minor, this was a minor decline. Okay, losing 7% from 39 to 32 and bring yourself within shooting distance of Bernie Sanders, that is not a minor decline. Well, now Joe Biden is being hit with accusations of plagiarism. According to the Washington Post, Joe Biden's presidential campaign lifted language without credit, at times word for word, when crafting its education and climate plans, incidents that campaign acknowledged and said were inadvertent. The incidents appear to be staff errors when, dealing, uh, when detailing Biden's policies. They underscored how hastily his campaign was attempting to put out specific proposals. But the issue was a particularly sensitive one for Biden, whose 1988 campaign was derailed after he plagiarized in speeches rhetoric used by British politician Neil Kinnock. Reports also emerged he used lines from two Democrats, Robert F. Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey, without attribution. Biden had also been cited for plagiarism in a paper during law school. He quit the campaign shortly after the flurry of uses was reported. Biden's campaign said they would update his policy plans. Leah Stokes, a political scientist at UC Santa Barbara, she said Biden appears to be taking ideas from other people and not giving them credit. You can't do that. It speaks of pulling an all-nighter and reading off of your friend's essay. I love how everybody in the media and on the left is struggling not to use the word plagiarism. So the Washington Post reporter refers back to Biden's plagiarism from before. But I promise you, that if Ted Cruz just lifted language direct from Heritage Foundation for his 2016 website, that would have been cited as plagiarism. And then, of course, they point out other campaigns have used unattributed language similar to that crafted by primary sources. A policy plan by Senator Kamala Harris includes a line that black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. That is identical to a reference in an American Heart Association document. It's a statistic, campaign spokesman Ian Sams said when asked for comment. And that, at least, I think there's a, a fair contention to be made. If you lift a stat, it's hard to rewrite a stat dramatically. But if you do what Biden did and you lift entire policy language, that's a problem. In case of his education policy, Biden used a sentence word for word from an education policy publication from the group XQ Institute. After the Washington Post contacted the campaign about the sentence, it added a link to the Institute's publication. Now, watch as the media try to defend him. So Michael Grunewald, who is a reporter for Politico, he tweets out, we're supposed to be mad at Biden because he copied a few lines of his climate plan from environmental groups? That's not plagiarism. That's agreeing. No, that's, that's plagiarism. Like, I, you can't use that in, in any other circumstance. If I write a book and then I just lift an entire paragraph without any citation whatsoever, that is not me just agreeing with the source material. That is plagiarism. Plagiarism is you take somebody else's work without crediting them and then you attribute it to yourself, which is exactly what the campaign did here. And it's not just that. Joe Biden is running into headwinds because he just, he's not great at this, guys. I mean, the reason that Joe Biden, and that I had said his best day would be his first day, is because eventually people were going to have to see Joe Biden campaign. And when Joe Biden campaigns, it ain't great for him. Here is Joe Biden yesterday downplaying the threat of China on the global stage. We're in a position where we have the most agile venture capitalists in the world. They know, I mean, it's not like we're, they're, they're bad guys. They, we're, we're, we're the best at doing it. Our workers are literally three times as productive as workers in the Far East, I mean, in, 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 excuse me, in Asia. And they're, they're three times as productive. And so what are, we, what are we worried about? Yeah, he's saying, what are we worried about in terms of China's economy? Well, I agree with him to the extent that China's economy is not as powerful as people say that it is. But China is a global threat. And downplaying that global threat is not a particularly smart move. The CNN panel yesterday basically laughed at Biden because there was a report from the New York Times that back in 1987, 
Biden went around claiming that he had marched for civil rights when he never did. Here's the CNN panel actually scoffing openly at the Democratic frontrunner. When he gets very comfortable out on the stump speaking and other things, he has tended to embellish. He has tended to, um, you know, make things sound slightly rosier than they are. Now, his aides went back to say, look, he was in office marching for the idea of civil rights, but was not actually marching in the streets. But that would not huh? fly as much. But he yeah, was supporting civil rights. But I'm saying that in today's science of marching me on Twitter, okay. Uh, so, you know, the, the fact that, you know, the, the fact that CNN is laughing at Joe Biden is not a good plan for Joe Biden. The guns are starting to, to open up on him. Biden wisely is trying to ignore the provocation. Yesterday, he was asked a bunch of questions about Democrats criticizing him, and he tried to simply walk past it. I'm not sure he can brush past it for much longer. How do you think those Democrats who took swipes at you in California over the weekend? See you around. Who's going back to the past? Look, look, I I understand. I I don't blame them. They got to, you know, they're they're good folks, but, uh, um, well, you know, as I said, see you around. (laughs) Yeah, so it is, it is, you know, Joe Biden can only ignore this for so long, and the attacks on him are only going to grow from here. The, the real problem for, with the plagiarism thing here is not that Joe Biden is lifting language, per se. You know, that, that is a problem, and Joe Biden has a long history of it. But it is another indicator that Joe Biden is not authentic, that Joe Biden lifts his sources from other places. He lifts his stories from other people. He lifted his entire childhood, basically, from Neil Kinnock in that 1988 campaign. If he underscores that again, it's going to be a problem for him. A gaffe is simply when people show you the truth about themselves unintentionally. And that is what is happening with Biden right now. He is a person with no new ideas. He's a person who grabs his ideas from other people and then tries to pass them off as his own. He's never been a leader in any serious way that you can speak of. And this is why all of the media enthusiasm is moving over to people like Pete Buttigieg or Elizabeth Warren or maybe Kamala Harris, anybody who can present something new. Joe Biden is a throwback. Now, that is his appeal, is that he feels solid. But that solidity can be broken down by a bunch of progressives in his own party who decide to tear him down over being inauthentic, not sufficiently woke, not sufficiently leftist. I, I think that the, the erosion of Joe Biden may have just begun and may, we may be watching it in progress. Remember, we're still a, a year out from the primaries, guys. Alrighty, so time for some things I like and then some things that I hate. So things that I like. So my wife and I have been watching old screwball comedies uh, and these are just, they're, they're wonderful. They're just happy movies. They make you happy watching them. Uh, they are designed to be fun and humorous. Uh, there's a, this movie is called Bringing Up Baby. It's considered one of the great screwball comedies of all time. Howard Hawks, directed Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. Catherine Hepburn is extraordinarily young. This is a 1938 film. So this is one of her first major roles. And Cary Grant is, of course, incredibly charming on screen. Here's a little bit of the trailer for Bringing Up Baby. No, but if you'd only let me explain. You see, I just gave someone that bag to hold and that... I hope you realize that you've made a perfect fool of yourself in front of everyone. Have you finished? Uh, Yes, yes, I have. Thank you very much. There are a bunch of these old screwball comedies that are really terrific. I think maybe over the next week or so, I'll start recommending some more of these screwball comedies. My wife and I are in the middle of Arsenic and Old Lace, another Cary Grant film uh, from, the, from the 1940s. The, all of these things are just, there's nothing wrong with making films that make people happy. I know that we're not allowed to do that anymore. I, and that we're supposed to denigrate films that make people happy. So the real reason people are going to see all the Marvel Universe films is because they're basically happy, upbeat films. And they're basically, they're not about social justice, woke messaging. That's sort of, the, the, when the media loves it when they become that, 
But the reason the Marvel Universe was successful is because the movies are just fun to watch. And it's okay to go to a movie because it's fun to watch without any broader message. I'm going to recommend tomorrow another movie called Sullivan's Travels. I talked about this on the radio show yesterday. Sullivan's Travels is, is a film about a director who, of comedies. And he decides that he wants to get woke, basically. He wants to do some social justice messaging. He's not making important films, and this upsets him very much. And so he goes and he lives the life of a tramp, basically. And he unintentionally ends up being treated as a tramp, thrown in jail, being on a chain gang and all the rest. And he ends up, with the chain gang, watching a movie, which they're allowed to watch like once a month. And it ends up being one of his comedies. And all of the members of the chain gang are laughing. And he realizes, you know what? Comedy is kind of important. You know, non-offensive, just funny things. It, it relieves tension. It, makes, it gives us a social space to share. The, the movies used to do this for us. Increasingly, they do not. Now, all the Oscar-nominated movies do not. It's important to remember, back in the day, a lot of these kinds of movies were actually nominated for Best Picture, right? The Philadelphia Story, another screwball comedy from 1940, uh, that was nominated for Best Picture as well. So it, it used to be the movies were fun. I'd like to see the movies get fun again, although I think that fun may have been outlawed. Okay, time for some things that I hate. Okay, so over in Britain, protesters are being attacked. There's this new fangled thing on the left where if somebody on the right is hit with a milkshake, then that is just funny. It's not in any way dangerous or bad. And people on the right have said, physical assault is still physical assault. You have to have some rules against this. And people on the left are like, well, our milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. People on the left are very into the idea that if you hit somebody with a milkshake because milkshakes are inherently funny, then that is not a problem at all. As we see, this sort of milkshake stuff leads to other things because there was, an, there was an assault yesterday at a, an anti-Trump rally in, in Britain where an older fellow was hit with a milkshake and he immediately turned around and socked the guy who hit him with the milkshake, which, hey, he's perfectly within his rights. He hit me with a milkshake, I'll sock you too. Uh, it, it, things got really ugly over in London yesterday. People need to calm down. Trump is an elected leader of democracy. Nonetheless, you know, the ugliness that is being pushed in our politics is really bad stuff. There's an older gentleman being assaulted on the street. Very nice, very nice guys. He did a, he did a great job. Yeah, the, the fact that if you don't like Donald Trump, you're now like attacking random old servers on the street is pretty, pretty incredible. That's solid stuff. Okay, other things that I hate. So Chris Cuomo, the, the less smart of the Cuomo brothers, which is a hell of a recommendation. Uh, he was very upset yesterday. Why was he upset? Well, because one of the ex-deputies at Parkland was arrested. The ex-deputy, whose name was Scott Peterson, 56, was terminated from his position and charged with multiple counts of child neglect on Tuesday because an internal investigation found he retreated while students were under attack in February 2018, shooting the left 17 people dead. Peterson absolutely refused to do his duty. He was then, now he's being prosecuted for it. Scott Israel has lost his job. He was the head of the Broward County Sheriff's Department. He was terrible at his job. Here was Chris Cuomo lamenting how it's like the United States' fault more broadly that this guy is going to jail, not the fault of a duly constituted law enforcement officer who was being paid for his job and who not only failed to charge into the fray, who then told other law enforcement officials to stay 500 yards away from a shooter who was going around door to door and killing students. His name is Scott Peterson, and he's now facing a lot of criminal charges, 11 counts, felony, child neglect, his actions or inaction during the shooting, 
We remember 17 are dead. Not that he's why they are dead specifically. We know that only gets attributed to the gunman. But I guess what really gets me is this is what we decide to act on. Right. This is this is the move that makes the most sense after a shooting. This is the best we can do. Like I say, it's often misunderstood, but it's true. I, only in America do you it, respond to something like this. <clears throat> this way. Wow. Incredible journalism there from from Chris Cuomo and Don Lemon a repository of intelligence on, on CNN. I can't imagine why their ratings are just awful. Chris Cuomo, yeah, it turns out that if you sign up as a law enforcement officer and then you run away from a fight where kids are getting shot and you have a gun on your hip, that yeah, you might get prosecuted. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing that in America you get prosecuted. This is how you get law enforcement officers doing their damn job. But apparently that's very bad. CNN, by the way, their coverage of Parkland has been garbage from beginning to end. It just shows how shameful it was when they did that CNN Parkland Town Hall, which turned into 15 Minutes Hate from 1984, where everybody basically got together and yelled at Dana Lash and Marco Rubio and suggested they were responsible for the shooting. And then they won an award from USC's Annenberg Center for Media for it. The media did a garbage job on that. So I love a media that are now defending the deputy, Scott Peterson, who abandoned children who were being shot, but declaring that Dana Lash and Marco Rubio were responsible for the shooting. Just Amazing, amazing journalism, guys. Okay, we'll be back here a little bit later today with two additional hours of content. So be there or be square. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Robert Sterling, directed by Mike Joyner, executive producer, Jeremy Boring, senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey, everyone. It's Andrew Claven, the host of The Andrew Claven Show. A depressed 17-year-old girl in the Netherlands has ended her own life. We don't know right now whether the government assisted her suicide or just stood back and let it happen. But euthanasia is permitted in Holland for children as young as 12. And it seems fair to ask, is the culture of death that let this young girl go the same culture that is killing Europe itself. We'll talk about that, and we'll have the mailbag to solve your problems on The Andrew Clavin Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 